The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. In the midst of a series Pastor Ben kicked off last week, Gospel-Centered Community. Last week from Acts chapter 2, he shared with you what community on display looks like. What does Christian community, what does gospel-centered community, what is the church to look like? And today I'm going to back up this Sunday and next. I'm going to back up a step and I'm going to ask, what is the basis for that community? How, How is it that we share in this community together? Where does this community come from? Later this afternoon, I'm going to head to Southeastern Seminary where I'll spend a week studying with Dr. Shaddix. If you remember Dr. Shaddix, those of you who are here, he preached here uh, while I was on sabbatical. We're doing a class on a theology of preaching. And in our reading, we had to read a book by John Piper where Piper said this, that the overwhelming sense of the modern preacher in evangelicalism is that they are consumed with the context. Now, I have to be concerned about context today. I'm preaching in Gaston County, North Carolina on January the 13th, 2019. There are certain things that I have to have in my mind as to how I'm going to communicate to you who have gathered at this point in time at this place. But if we're totally driven by context, we can sometimes miss the truth that God is proclaiming And if you're totally driven by context, if everything has to be relevant to your context as to where you're living, there's no way that I could preach a sermon today that's going to touch the personal immediate need that every one of you in this room have. It's not possible. But here's what he said. That sometimes you show up at the gathering of God's people. And sometimes the pastor knows that what he's about to do is to bring a brand new category to bear. In other words, some of you don't have a context for what I'm about to preach. That God's about to create a brand new category. So somebody walked up to me after the last service and said, it was kind of quiet in there today, wasn't it? It's because people are processing something that they've not thought through. Now, how could I be so, I don't know what the word is, I'll just use the word arrogant, that it's going to be a new new category. Here's why. Because the study of this for me the last two years has been a new category. I preached through Ephesians and missed this. I danced all around it, but I didn't clearly see it. And therefore, I didn't clearly proclaim it. So it's my prayer today and over these next several weeks that we're going to see a truth here that maybe we've never really thought about. Today we take up union with Christ from Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. So I invite you to stand as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace 
to you and peace from our Lord, from, our, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, I plead now that the preaching of your word would be to the praise of your glory, that the receiving of your word would be to the praise of your glory. Work in us, through us, make the mystery of the gospel known by the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you live in what quite possibly may be the most autonomous, individualistic culture ever. We are driven with the idea of individualism. It is the very air that we breathe. And because it is so predominant in the culture and the world we live in, the influence of individualism has pressed in on the church. Salvation is seen almost solely as an individual thing. Now, it is individual. So don't write me letters that I said it's not, because it is. But notice what I said, that it is seen solely as individual. People see the church in a very individualistic manner. Church is a means to help me. It's a means to help my family. And if the church doesn't meet the needs of me and my family, then I'll go somewhere else. What we need is a profound understanding of what the church actually is and who God's people are. So this series, Gospel Centered Community, is to help us to identify what we think, believe, and practice. Now, notice that's present tense. What, 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 what I want to happen in my life, what I want to happen in your life, what I want to happen in our lives is for us to identify how do we currently think? What do we believe about the church? How is that affecting how we practice life together? Then 
that we prayerfully align ourselves together with what the word of God says. It is the gospel that shapes community, not us. And when we shape community around us, that's what we're going to get, us. So here's the main idea. All of the redeemed are in Christ, united together in him. I think most people would have simply said, all the redeemed are in Christ, period. So here's the category formation that I want you to see. That we are united together in him. This doctrine is called union with Christ. So let me define it. If you've never heard that term before, you don't have to use it ever again. Okay? But here's what it simply means. That Christ is in us and we are in him. That Christ is in us and that we are in him. What is true of Christ is true of us. That's profound. Asterisk. I am not saying that we become consumed into the Godhead. We don't become God. But what is true of Christ is true of us when we're in him. Robert Peterson said, the most basic of all saving truths is the union God the Father forges between the believer and his son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. To put it plainly, to be saved is to be united to the Savior. So as we launch into the first chapter of Ephesians, we're going to see that his central claim, Paul's central claim under the inspiration of the Spirit, as it relates to salvation, is that the Father is uniting a people to his Son in order to fulfill his redemptive mission. His introduction begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to say this before I get into the exposition. When I preach to Ephesians, I preach four sermons on the verses I'm preaching. You literally could preach for six months or a year and still not exhaust these 14 verses. I'm, I'm, I have a very particular point today. There's some of you, people have already been doing this after every service. You missed this. I know. I, I can't preach all of it today. My point is that all of the redeemed are in Christ, united together in him. That's what I want you to see. So he writes, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, plural, are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you have used terms like this. Well, my grandma, she was a saint. Well, was your grandma a Christian? Then she was a saint. If you're a Christian, guess what? You're a saint. When the Bible uses the word saint, it is referring to those who are in Christ, who are faithful. Now, this, this is not primarily concerned with what we do. This is primarily concerned with what we believe, that we are believing Christ. That believing translates into how we live, but that we are faithfully trusting in Christ Jesus. Now, what follows in verses 3 through 14 contains some deep and profound theological truths. I'm not going to apologize for them. 
Some of these things may be new to you, may have never heard it, you may have never thought about it. But here's what you need to understand about us as a church. The reason we preach expositionally, verse by verse, through the Bible, is so that we deal with what the Bible says, not what we want to say. And I'm not going to let my past thinking dictate how we preach and receive what is in front of us. This is one of our foundational truths. If you've gone through membership, here's what you went through. We believe that the Bible is the word of God in its entirety and that all of it must be proclaimed. So in this text, you're going to see election, adoption, redemption, glorification. What I want you to see is that all of these things are understood in union with Christ. So first, in union with Christ, we are his adopted children. Now let me define we before I proceed. We are those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. So I'm not talking of every human being that's in this room. I'm speaking of every person in this room who is trusting in Jesus Christ, key word, alone. If you're trusting in Jesus and something else, then I'm not talking to you. If you're not trusting in him at all, I'm not talking to you. The Bible here is addressing the believer. Now, the non-believer in the room needs to heed what is said. You need to hear what is said. And it is my prayer that the mystery is going to become clear to you today. That that which has been clouded, that God's going to open your eyes to see it. That in union with Christ, here's what's true of us. We are his adopted children. Verse three begins, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how verse 14 ends, to the praise of his glory. So this begins and ends with praise. Now here's here's what's profound about this. Verses three through 14 in the Greek is one sentence, one sentence, 202 Greek words in one sentence. I I was uh, trained to be an English teacher. I've never done it. One of these days, I'm going to try to diagram this just to see, is it possible? Man, that thing would have arms everywhere. One sentence, the connection, the connected phrase is in Christ or in him. So the union with Christ is what's influencing all this. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, unless you're foolish, When you get out of your car at the rim of the Grand Canyon, you don't go. My wife knew I was foolish, so she was holding me as we went up. You kind of inch up there, and immediately you're struck by awe and wonder. Immediately. So, so brothers and sisters, you're, you're approaching the rim of the Grand Canyon of Scripture here. Of God's work. In salvation. This should result in awe and wonder. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now here's what I want you to see right off the bat. Paul here is not addressing the individual. What's the pronoun? Primarily. Us. 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 We. He's addressing the body of Christ at Ephesus. And through his eternal word, he is addressing the body of Christ as a whole for all time. So here's what we've got to understand this. We've got to understand this in Christ. So I'll start with a question. Does Jesus Christ have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Does he? Then so do you. That's what he's saying. <laughs> that everything that is Christ's is ours. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Question. Is Christ loved by the Father? Then so are you. Question. How long has Christ been loved by the Father? Turn to John 17. By the way, John 17 is Jesus' prayer for his church of what union with Christ looks like. It's worth meditating and praying through. Jesus says in verse 23, I in them and you in me. So if Christ is in us, God is in us. That they may become perfectly one. You see why he's in us? That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. So how, how did he love him? Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So for those of you that have ever come to this doctrine and you've read this passage that he chose you in him before the foundation of the world and you, you've struggled with some kind of mechanistic God that's doing something that's fatalistic, you're missing it. You are completely missing it. It's the love of the Father in the Son, to his people from eternity past. He didn't start loving you at some moment and then he's going to love you forever. Here's, he's loved you forever. Oh, from the foundation of the world. Why? That we may be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? 
according to the purpose of his will. This church is full of adopted children. None of those children wrote a letter to a particular parent at Parkwood Baptist Church and said, I'm over here in Bulgaria, will you come get me? No, those parents made a conscious decision and they went and they chose that child. That's what God's saying. Chose you. To be mine. And he did it in love. And here's what he's reminding all of us. Here's what he's reminding all of us in this text. Peter picks this up. People want to say, this is only a Pauline doctrine. Wrong. Peter picks this up and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now here's who you are. You are the people of God. It's a quote. God chose his people and predestined them to be his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. God's incorporation of believers into the family of God is through Christ or that is by union with the son of God. Question, is Christ the chosen one? Yes. And it is by union with him that you are chosen. Thanks be unto God. So I'm back to the edge of the rim of the Grand Canyon. After you've stood there for a moment, you got one of two things to do as an individualistic American. You can either start going, well, there's a rational explanation for this. Over millions of years, there have been lots of erosion, and that's how this got here. Or you can do this. Praise so you can either come to what I just preached in Ephesians and you can come up with some rationalistic, man-centered explanation for it or you can look at it and you can say, praise God. Because that's what Paul did. Look in verse six. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in union with Christ, we are his adopted children. Second, in union with Christ, we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We have redemption through his blood. So our adoption was purchased by the blood of Christ. That means we were ransomed, we were redeemed, we've been set free, we've been delivered. We were a people that were in bondage. What were we in bondage to? Trespasses. The word trespasses means that we have broken the law of God. And because of that, we have amassed a debt. And that debt has been forgiven, canceled. The forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This, this forgiveness is down from the riches of God's grace. That means there is absolutely, utterly nothing that we have done to earn or to deserve. He lavished it on us. He abundantly provided upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us 
The mystery of his will. How did he make this mystery known? In Christ. That Christ came to this earth. Fully God and fully man. Lived a sinless life. Then went to the cross and died a sinner's death in our place. And paid our ransom. And then broke through the grave in resurrection, our Lord and our Savior. It is through Christ that the mystery has been made known. That which used to be obscured is now seen in Christ. He is the one who has granted us the wisdom and the insight to see it. None of you are smart enough for that. None of us are. He has lavished it forth and he has made known to us. He did it. She set forth in Christ for the fullness of time to unite all things to herself. Now, now get with me. Here's where a category shift's about to happen. Most evangelical preaching is man-centered. It's what God does for man. Now listen to me. You You all, I hope, have already been staggered as we've thought about our salvation of what God has done for us as human beings. But what God has done for us, using a musical term, is penultimate. It's the note before the crescendo. Here's ultimately what God is doing. According to the purposes set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him. That is, Christ is the focal point. He's not just the means. He's not just the means to our salvation. He is the focal point of our salvation. He is the instrument through which all of salvation occurs. That's why he picks up this prayer in verses 15 to 23. I'm just going to read part of it. I'm going to pick up verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who who fills all in all. Christ has redeemed us as a people that we would praise him. Forever and forever. Now, now I, I, I haven't done this yet today, but I'm just going to pause because you're out there. This happened at the youth retreat. Well, that, isn't that arrogant of God? Okay, can I have a question for you? Then who's he going to give the praise to? The moment God shifts the praise to somebody else, they become... This is an important theological connection you got to make. He is all and he is in all through Christ our Lord. This led the old hymn writer to write these words. We don't write like this much anymore. Amazing love, how can it be? Now don't miss this next line. That thou, my God, should die for me. That thou, my God should die for me. So we've seen in union with Christ, we've been adopted into his family. In union with Christ, we have been redeemed by the, by the blood of Christ. In union with Christ, we have 
guaranteed inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also. Now here's what he's doing right here, and I don't have time to explain it. He's going Jew first, then the Gentile. Okay? So that we who were the first, that's the Jew, in him you also, the Gentile, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we have obtained an inheritance. So Jesus Christ, the son, inherits from his father. Now here's the profound nature of this. We who have been adopted as sons in union with Christ, all who are now in union with Christ are beneficiaries. And don't miss this. I have four children. If they all outlive me when I die, they'll all get some. Some, not all. Here's what the Bible's teaching. In Christ, we get all. We are co-heirs with Christ. Only God can do that. So this purposeful plan of the Father through the Son is sealed by the Holy Spirit. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. So for those of you who got hung up at the doctrine of election earlier, every time the Bible teaches the doctrine of election, it will also accompany very near to it the clear explanation that there must be the preaching of the gospel. You cannot separate these two doctrines out. The gospel must be heard Romans 9 through 11 is this great explanation, this lofty explanation of election. And in the middle of it is Romans 10, faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Here you see it. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. You cannot hear and believe apart from him. In him, when you heard, you heard the word of truth and you believed in him. Then it says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? The word seal here means a distinguishing mark. And there are at least three nuanced ways, distinct ways you could think about this mark. First, it is a mark of ownership. So in my books, I have a a, a, a stamp that I use like a notary would use and it says from the library of Jeff Long. I used to have one that said the property of and I got convicted about that and decided that no. So if you ever want to borrow one of my books, I'll let you borrow it and it's going to remind you it's from my, the library. It means, it means in, in some sense I own it. Uh, one of our former interns, Matt Agee, every time he comes back from Iowa brings me a stack of my books that say from the library <laughs> So it's a mark of ownership. So the, so the Holy Spirit is sealing to say, you're mine. You're mine. Number two, a seal is a, is a protection against harm or tampering. I used to load trucks. You'd finish a truck. You'd drop the 
flipped the uh, switch to lock it down, and then we took a little metal thing and put through there and crimped it together. It had a distinct number on it. That meant when it got to its destination, they would check that number, make sure that it hadn't been tampered with. So that's what the Holy Spirit is doing with us. He's making sure we don't get tampered with. Number three, it's an authentication. It's a guarantee that this is the real thing. So when a brown truck pulls up in your yard and a guy hops out of it, if it's just a brown truck, you might go, who is this guy? Or who is this lady? But if that brown truck has a yellow insignia on the side of it that says UPS, you say right away, that's authenticated. That person ought to be here to deliver me this package. What the Spirit of God does is authenticate us. Now look how he says this in Romans. Uh, Chad already read Galatians. That's another text to look at. In Romans 8, Verse 16, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what this text is teaching you here is this authentication is not just a subjective internal thing. It is that, that the spirit is testifying with our spirit that we're the children of God. But this authentication is in how we live. That we're living unto Christ. That our lives are associated with Christ, even to the point of suffering as Christ the Lord suffered. Now, you take all of this together and you say, how should we respond? Well, Paul gives you the response at the end of verse 14 to the praise of his glory. The revealing nature of the entirety of the text points to the fulfillment of God's redemptive mission. That is, the ultimate goal is that God himself be glorified. God reveals himself in this text in the Trinitarian nature. In union with Christ, we have been chosen by God the Father and we've been adopted as his children. In union with Christ, we have been redeemed by the work, the sufficient once and for all work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son. In union with Christ, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for a guaranteed eternal inheritance. Now, so what to this? There are lots of applications that could be made, lots. And you could suggest many, and I told you I could preach multiple sermons. But we are concerned with how this affects us together. So here's my question. Are we gratefully aware that our union with Christ is the basis of the communion of the saints? And we're gonna play a little game. Look at the word communion and tell me what words you clearly see there. Union, that's on purpose. The theologians understood this years ago, that union and communion that communion, what we share together, is a result of our union with Christ. So let me say it the way I started. All of the redeemed are in Christ, united together in him. So when Paul moves to the application in chapter four, he's not just moving to say, here's how the gospel is to be applied in the life of you as an individual believer. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, how is the gospel applied in your lives together as the body of Christ? 
So as he begins this application, he reminds them in a summary of what he's been teaching. Chapter four, verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you ever met anybody that's all into theology, but they're not very nice? I have. Here's what union with Christ is not. Union with Christ is not simply a theological idea to be understood and believed. Union with Christ is a reality to be lived. That's where we're headed. How does this affect how we live together? Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.